Welcome to the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast. My name is Ian Donnelly. There hasn't been a whole lot to laugh about in British policing for quite a few years now. This podcast is all about what it was really like to be in the British police for the last 30 years. In the podcast, I'll talk about all the different jobs that I did, and I'll interview people who also did some really interesting things. I'll give you my thoughts about what's been going on recently in the news to help you understand how it all works. Spoiler alert, it's not like it is on the telly. This podcast is the real deal. I'm going to be discussing some quite disturbing things from time to time, so listener caution is advised. There may also be a bit of swearing, so best to keep the kids out of the room. Everything I say and have written comes out of a place of great love for British policing. You may not agree with it all, and that's okay. But all I ask is that you listen with an open mind, and if you go away feeling that you know a bit more about what policing is really all about, and perhaps have a bit more empathy for police officers, then I've succeeded. So, here we go. Hello folks, how you doing? Ian here. It's been a funny old week this week. I'm not going to interview anybody this week uh, for a couple of reasons. Firstly, um, I have got people teed up to interview, but diaries have been a bit of a nightmare to try and coordinate things but hopefully we'll get back on it again next week i've got one or two really great people potentially lined up i just need to uh, physically get them sat at the right place at the right time Uh, so this week because there's been so much going on uh, in the world of policing i'm just going to give you my thoughts as i do Um, i was just having a conversation with a good friend of mine uh on the phone this morning and he said to me bloody hell you're you're really on it aren't you and I said oh god uh yeah kinda but the truth is um sometimes I think what the fuck am I actually doing genuinely I just think what the fuck are you doing you idiot you know I seem to have stepped into this unbelievably difficult situation that policing is now in and uh, sometimes when I'm having a bad day uh, I had a bit of a funny old day yesterday I just was really filled with self-doubt about everything and just thinking oh god idiot Um, and I just thought it was that sort of monkey on your shoulder isn't it sometimes that everybody gets that sort of imposter syndrome or self-doubt or call it what you want but um i was really sort of challenging myself and beating myself up about it and saying you know who the fuck do you think you are you know why should anyone give a shit about anything that you think about anything you know the, the reality is that um this whole situation with british policing has taken quite a long time to get into this mess and um I'm probably, you know, deluding myself if I think I can single-handedly try and sort it all out because clearly I can't. So that's what I think when I'm, um, you know, questioning what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. But then I, I kind of have to go back to, back to kind of square one again and go, hold on, you've written a book here. You're the only person, it feels at the moment, 
a little bit like you're the only person in the UK who's actually saying this stuff and calling it all out, calling out the politicians, calling out the, the media. Um, yeah, and pointing out some of the systemic issues within policing, particularly within police leadership. Um, yeah, um, do I think I'm right in all of this stuff 100% of the time? No, probably not. But the feedback that I'm getting online and from people tends to suggest I'm kind of there or thereabouts, really. So I suppose uh, the reality is I'm, I'm just going to carry on doing it. I probably do have to manage my own expectations sometimes. Yeah, nothing is, this is not going to solve policing. I think I've got to be really clear about that in my own head. But if it, you know what, if it kind of helps inform the debate, if it starts a conversation, then that's probably as much as you can expect. So, um, big thing really since the last podcast is the um, resignation of Cressida, Cressida Dick, the Commissioner of the Metropolitan Police on Friday. Really, really sad development. Um, very unexpected. She had given that interview that morning on LBC where she'd been very clear that she was going nowhere. Um, she had a subtle dig at Sadiq Khan, um, uh, pointing out some of his own inconsistencies and in some of the things that he said. And uh, yeah, so it came as a real shock to, to hear that she had resigned. And um, yeah, so what I did, I sort of went away and sort of thought about it. And then on the Friday evening, I gave the interview to Rob Rinder on Talk Radio. Uh, they had contacted me that afternoon to get my thoughts on Cressida. Um, yeah, so uh, in a moment, you can hear that interview. Uh, apologies for anybody who has already heard it uh, on one of the other sites, maybe LinkedIn or Facebook. If you have, just skip through it, because uh, I'm sure you don't want to sit and listen to it again. But yeah, Rob Rinder, what a top bloke, really positive, really pro-police. Um, and clearly, he can see what's going horribly wrong, as he's a barrister and he's seen it from the other side he's seen that the criminal justice system is is just as broken as as policing is um it was a funny old interview actually because uh, what happens is you you don't actually speak to him initially you speak to the producer um and they say you know hi and can you um give us um a quick interview on blah 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 and and generally the questions i ask are yes no you know who, who's going to be interviewing me how long for and roughly what areas do you want to cover just give me a bit of a fighting chance of not looking like a a complete fucking idiot um, and um, she told me that it was going to be seven to eight minutes long so I was kind of happy with that I thought right okay uh, in the end it was like over 20 minutes I was like oh god make it stop um, because you get sort of halfway through it and Rob bless him he'd obviously got into his stride um, but he's got a uh, he's got a, a fun of interesting way of asking questions in that you have no idea where he's going with it. Um, he'll start a sort of quite a long little monologue and uh, and then he, right at the end he'll throw in the question and, and you're thinking, okay, so where's he going with this? You think you know the question he's going to ask uh, and it's a completely different question ultimately. Um, but it was, 
it's mentally um, challenging, quite good fun as well. I quite enjoy it in a weird sort of way, quite a masochistic kind of way. But I was definitely ready for a drink after that interview because it did feel as if it was going on for absolutely ever. Um, so you can hear that interview with Rob at the end of the podcast, or at least once I stop rabbiting on. Um, before I do that, uh, I had a very sort of thoughtful weekend, really. Um, you know, I gave an awful lot of thought to the whole issue with Cressida. And on Sunday, was it? I think it was Sunday. I wrote an article which I put on my website, on one of the blogs on my website. And it's had a phenomenal um, reaction, actually. It had been read something like 3,000 times inside less than 24 hours and uh, the last time I checked which was earlier on today I think it's a, it's about five and a half thousand times it's been read um, and uh, yeah it seems to have really resonated with a lot of people so um, I just thought it might be quite interesting to actually read that article um, now uh, because if you haven't read it I'd just be interested in in sort of sharing it with you and to get some thoughts and reactions, really. So, so the article is uh, titled uh, Cressida, the final nail in the coffin of British policing. From time to time, an action or a series of actions can be so grievous that only the language of theology, the idea of sin, can adequately describe them. I read an article yesterday written by Tom Simons, the BBC Home Affairs correspondent, and I realised that this is now one of those times. The article's title was, Why is it so hard to fix the Met's toxic culture? It has become increasingly clear to me that British police officers have been the victims of a series of grievous sins. Sins consciously committed by people in positions of power over the last 12 years. My heart sank when I read Tom's article at the end of yet another terrible week for British policing that saw the resignation of the much-loved Cressida Dick, forced out of office by the slippery Sadiq Khan. Khan, you will remember, also threw Danny Cotton, the first female leader of the London Fire Brigade, onto the bus for her role in the Grenfell Tower tragedy. So, he is form for moral cowardice and refusal to take any personal responsibility for wider failings in the institutions he's responsible for. In his article, Tom has fallen into the same trap as so many journalists by lazily stereotyping police officers as racist, misogynistic, homophobic, homophobic and corrupt based on the bad behaviour of a small number of people. This lie has now become an unquestioned truth in the minds of many people. The actual truth, however, is that these issues have always existed in policing, or for that matter, in any large complex organisation dealing with the frequently chaotic lives of the general public. Doctors, nurses, teachers, lawyers, soldiers, sailors, social workers, journalists and MPs will see their fair share of criminality, incompetence or destructive behaviour that lets everyone down. Yet for reasons that none of us in the police family understand, policing now seems to get exceptional treatment. How differently the police service gets treated compared to the media fetishization of the armed forces and the military veteran community. 
The title of Tom's article instantly makes a sweeping judgment that the Met's culture, from top to bottom, is toxic. When those who work in the Met, or any large police force for that matter, know that this is not the case. The article then goes on to cherry-pick evidence, in inverted commas, based on the testimonies of disgruntled current or ex-officers with an axe to grind. Many of the people the media select to inform articles like this were neither liked nor respected by their colleagues. None of that was because of the colour of their skin, gender or sexuality, but usually because they were either not very good at their jobs or because they sought conflict and division from day one. Many of them then set out to deflect attention away from their professional shortcomings by making disingenuous allegations that they continued to rehearse after they left. Is it possible that some of them experienced unfairness in policing? Yes, it is. Did I, and most of the people I worked with, occasionally experience injustice at the hands of toxic colleagues or bosses in policing? Yes, I did. But I chose to see that for what it was. Unfairness that you will find in any large organisation composed of fallible, flawed and sometimes malevolent human beings. Does it mean that the entire organisation is corrupt and needs root and branch reform? No, it doesn't. Just to be clear, I'm not charging Tom with knowingly committing a grievous sin. More likely, I suspect that he and so many people like him have simply become so blinkered by a one-sided narrative about policing in the UK that they've lost the ability to see the bigger picture. Some will read that and start huffing and puffing indignantly about high-profile policing failures, which include, but are not limited to, Stephen Port's serial killer failures, crime scene selfies, Wayne Cousins, Charing Cross WhatsApp idiots, undercover policing sexual liaisons. All of those things are horrible, and everyone inside the policing family shares the same outrage and disappointment that those outside policing are, are feeling. But here's my point. These things do not represent the work of the overwhelming majority of police officers as they try and do what is rapidly becoming an impossible job. Moreover, it's monumentally stupid and naive to think that policing by definition will ever escape these issues because of the nature of doing a frequently chaotic and messy job. The media and political narrative at the moment is this. The British Police Service is bad. It needs fixing, and if only that happened, then all will be well. However, every single person in policing, barring those who have just joined, knows that, that, that this is untrue. So, getting back to my original point, the grievous sins that have been and continue to be committed against the British Police Service. What are they, and who is guilty in the eyes of most experienced police officers? In descending order of culpability. 1. David Cameron. Cameron is ground zero for the demise of British policing. He should be remembered for his mean-spirited determination to punish the police service for standing up to his old bosses Ken Clark and Michael Hard when they sought to change police terms and conditions of employment back in 1992, when Cameron was a Home Office advisor. He'd had a massive bee in his bonnet about policing for many years, insisting in 2006 that he would be tough on crime, tough on police reform. 
when he was in opposition. So in 2010, it was payback time. Two, Theresa May for her appalling treatment of policing as both Home Secretary and Prime Minister. Her advisers and her hatchet man, Tom Windsor, share the blame here. Three, politicians like Sadiq Khan, Diane Abbott and others indulge in political grandstanding to massage their egos rather than thinking about what is best for the public or victims of crime. In my book, Tango Juliet Foxtrot, I also lay some of the blame at the door of New Labour, who funded the police generously, but then undid all that by tying everyone up in hundreds of pointless performance indicators. Four, journalists from across the political divide gleefully report only the 5% of bad news and hardly any of the good news and incredible bravery that goes on day and night. If they can't find bad news, they distort the facts to suit their agenda. The Clapham Vigil debacle was an excellent example of this. Many police officers believe that the incessant police bashing by the media is payback because of the dozens of journalists arrested by the Met during the Leveson inquiry into phone hacking. Five, it is also arguable that far too many chief constables committed sins of omission by failing to challenge all of this, preparing to keep their heads below the parapet. However, to be fair, Cameron's creation of frequently pointless and expensive PCCs sitting above chief constables made that very difficult. So what has the result of all of this been in real terms? The result is that we've seen a complete collapse in police morale, a public safety disaster in the UK, and a situation where 94% of crime reported to the police now goes unsolved. Crime might come from victims are dismally poor, and members of the public now have very little expectation that anyone will be held to account in the courts for what they did. Young men continue to die in huge numbers on our streets at the hands of other young men, and police officers frequently turn a blind eye to this for fear of being accused of racism. Half the police stations in England and Wales and 75% of the police stations in London have been shut or sold off to save money. The public now rarely sees police officers and local officers building trusted relationships with local people are now a thing of the past. The service is experiencing a tsunami of mental health issues amongst officers and staff and a suicide rate double that of the general population. Officers in England and Wales are owed over half a million rest days which were cancelled due to staffing shortages and police social media sites are filled with the voices of officers who have had enough and intend to resign. Resignations have never been higher and those with skills in serious crime investigation roles or technical skills are leaving to the private sector in their droves. Many new Operation Uplift officers make it very clear that they have little intention of staying for more than a few years, guaranteeing an ongoing staffing crisis and wasting millions of pounds in recruitment and training. Recruits also appear to be woefully unprepared for the rigours of frontline policing after over, overly intellectualised training regimes dreamt up by blue sky thinkers in the College of Policing. All of this has cost many lives and have been cut, that have been cut short far too early, lives that would not have been lost if we still had visible, engaged and proactive neighbourhood teams to spot things early and fix them before it was too late. Most of what we're now seeing is a direct or an indirect consequence of the sins committed against policing. 
cuts that went too deep for too long and a relentlessly hostile media narrative. I fear that the resignation of the much-loved Cressida Dick marks a new low point from where it will be very difficult to recover. Even if things were to improve for policing instantly, it would take a generation to undo the damage of the last 12 years of conservative malice and stupidity. Priti Patel can look wherever she likes to find a replacement for Cressida, at home or abroad, inside or outside the service, but the fact remains that policing is broken. That person, God help them, can only do so much and will quickly find themselves overwhelmed by the brokenness of UK policing and the broader criminal justice system. Dante proposed that the worst sin that a human being can commit is betrayal, and that those who committed it would be banished to the ninth and deepest ring of hell. Dante described the ninth ring as the bottom of the universe, containing a horde of sinners beyond all others ill-begot. Without any shadow of a doubt, tens of thousands of decent, honest, brave and trustworthy police officers in the UK who make up the vast majority of the service have been completely betrayed by this government and also by journalists who seem to delight in rubbing salt into wounds that are already very raw. In my book, in my blogs and on my podcast, I've avoided the language of faith or theology. As a hospice chaplain, I know that many people do not have religious beliefs. Broader society now tends to reject theological language, often used in a clumsy or judgmental way. I'm not remotely bothered by what people individually believe or don't believe when I work as a chaplain. It's my job to talk to them, listen to them and help them and their families make sense of what is happening if I can. However, I tend to believe that no one ever truly gets away with anything in life. Sins committed today may not be paid for immediately. Still, my strong sense and my experience is that eventually there will always be some sort of physical, psychological or spiritual reckoning for even the most unrepentant sinner. It's just a tragedy that so many people will continue to pay the price for the sins committed against the British Police Service and many will pay with their lives. So, there you go. Um, we'll see what happens. Right, leave it with you. Common Sense Talk Radio. Now, Dame Cressida Dick says she was left with no choice but to resign after London's Mayor Sadiq Khan made it clear to her that he had no confidence in her leadership. Uh, Cressida Dick, who was the first woman to lead the biggest UK police force, has faced controversial few months with her leadership being called into question. And, um, for disclosure, listeners, I've met her a couple of times. Now question is this, how much has political meddling in the media narrative played a part in Cressida Dick's resignation and how much, press, how much pressure will the next Met police officer, the next Met head of it, the commissioner, be under? Joining me now is former police officer with a three decades worth of experience and the author of Tango, Juliet Foxtrot. It's Ian Donnelly. Um, Ian Donnelly, um, you know, 
Before Cressida Dick uh, took over her job as was the hardest job in policing, it's the biggest police force, you know, I worked alongside a lot of police officers and they were clapping and cheering her appointment. And the reason for that is because unlike other people who have taken her job in the past, being the head of a police service like that, she stood up for her police officers. And in the past, whereas others, I'm thinking, for example, when she was in command and control on the day that John de Menezes was shot, ran for cover and sought to blame other people uh, she stood up and she said look this is my fault and took full responsibility and i think a lot of people who are in the police service and serve for a long time really have respected her this is a sad day for policing isn't it ian yes uh, rob uh, it's a very sad day for policing the last 24 hours have been uh, terrible really that's the only word i can use to describe it um cressida was much loved um by police officers all over the uk but particularly obviously in the met her own force um she's a fantastic whatever some of her detractors might think um she has proved herself again and again to be a fantastic um human being uh, with absolutely amazing and uh, irreproachable integrity mm-hmm. uh, she's superb uh, operationally and she has been um, more or less successful in managing what can only be described as a horrifically broad and complex portfolio in the years um, that she's been right. there. So, yeah, very sad day. Could, could we just uh, just unpick that broad and complex portfolio? Look, the bottom line is she's gone because there are institutional cultures in policing that have now come to light, which have been there, you know this, uh, just as much uh, as I do, for a very, very long time. Now, she's ultimately responsible, and so, unlike, I might add, politicians, she's decided to, to, to go. But we think about Sarah Everard, the um, unacceptable racist and especially misogynist text between police officers you know the fact that um, for most people especially uh, uh, people that don't have access to sharp elbows if you're a victim of a crime you won't be able to get a police officer to come to your house the reality is there are structural failures that she's um, being blamed for what could she have done and what should the next person do and why isn't it Sadiq's fault three questions there, difficult but that's what everyone's asking yeah okay um, <clears throat> like everything else in life Rob everything happens for a reason And all of this needs to be put in a broader context of the fact that the British Police Service, to all intents and purposes, as I've said in my book, Tango Juliet Foxtrot, I'm sorry to have to say that the British Police Service and the broader criminal justice system at the moment is, is, to all intents and purposes, broken. And that's been broken as a result of, I'm sorry to say, and this is not a political point, this is a statement of fact, broken because of the last 12 years of this government, who took a extremely... um, heavy-handed and unnecessarily brutal approach to withdrawal of funding to the police service back in 2010 under David Cameron and Theresa May. Uh, We lost uh, 30% of the budget nationally. We lost 20,000 officers, 23,000 members of police staff. 50% of the police stations in the UK closed. 75% of the police stations closed in London. Um, Massively demoralised police service. um, Going to stop stop you there. Too many big points. And um, I am standing up applauding. You know, I I went and uh, visited local police stations. And, um, you know, I'm going to... Well, I haven't disclosed this before, but on one occasion I saw a young, uh, a pair of officers, bright, uh, young, brave women who were going to go out and police on behalf of our communities, and they were sharing bits of uniform. Um, That's what we're talking about, right, Ian? So why should 
Uh, what does it mean in real terms for people, and especially in London, where uh, the Metropolitan Police is the most complex police force, but it's up and down the country. What does it mean in real terms in terms of you being able to have access to a police officer, the police being the critical force, I use that word, on purpose that keep our communities safe? Yeah. So, so just to very quickly answer your previous question, politicians, Sorry. in my view, have broken British policing. Um, Sadiq Khan is, is another example of that. Um, very uh, opportunistic um, action he took yesterday, I think, uh, politically grandstanding. Um, and uh, the reality is that um, we've now got the lowest rate of criminal justice outcomes for crime ever recorded in the UK. So so the figures released by the Home Office about two weeks ago show a criminal justice conversion rate of total recorded crime of 6%, okay? So that means that 94% of crime reported to the police in England and Wales does not result in someone being held accountable in a criminal justice Can setting. we just stop? You, you do discuss this in your book a little bit. I have read it. Um, one of the things you don't deal with because you stay in your lane to a degree is forget to some extent the also sort of partnership role of the cps has also been woefully underfunded that has a significant uh, role in all of this as well right yes absolutely it's not just policing it's the court system it's the criminal it's the cps crime prosecution service it's the prison system so people are coming out of prison probably arguably more brutalized than when they went in and right. uh, absolutely no attempt whatsoever to rehabilitate people um, the probation uh, offender management service is massive underfunding, underfunding of all public sector services, including drug and alcohol, se- drug and alcohol services, for example. So we've got people who are wandering around the streets who are desperately in need of support, who are not getting it, who are languishing in police cells, which is totally unsuitable. So the whole system, root and branch, needs to be uh, reviewed. Now, the, the deal is it can't just be about uh, money. And I say that because, as you know, you know, especially when it comes to government, everything government does, by and in large, it often does, you know, badly and expensively. You can throw good money after bad. There are undoubtable, undoubtedly institutional and structural problems. It's a very posh way of saying, look, the whole thing needs root and branch reform. Now, the, the question is, um, whoever comes in next, if you were the next Metropolitan Commissioner, uh, next Police Commissioner, or sitting down with Sadiq, what would you say to him needs to be done to change this culture of, of policing uh, that we keep hearing about, which makes the reality of a person complaining about a crime, well, they've got about as much chance as me jumping out of an aircraft doing jazz hands of finding uh, the actual perpetrator, A, but more importantly, the culture within policing of this horrible, nasty workplace environment which none of us would tolerate we certainly wouldn't want any of our families to work in what would you say if you were sitting on that table Ian Donnelly I'd be saying let policing get on with doing policing for a start I would be saying um, the Home Office have got a massive responsibility here to um, make it absolutely crystal clear what exactly the job of policing is because I don't think anybody actually understands that anymore Uh, the police don't understand that the public don't know what to expect from policing so I'd be saying we need to change the way that we record um, what is what are the priorities for policing? I also would be saying um, internally within the organisation, and not that I'm ever going to be saying this because I'm never going to be commissioner, and thank God I'm not, mm-hmm. but I'd be saying uh, let us be absolutely clear about what is acceptable and what's not acceptable, and, and people who break that, stand, that standard, then there's no place for them in the organisation. So I think it's a bit of a carrot-and-stick approach. 
Right. I mean, one of the difficulties that I want to get really down into the weeds with you that I've sort of thought about in terms of metropolitan police is that each police station has its own kind of communication, has its own kind of culture. So, so you might, for example, go to Islington and find that you're speaking to one person that's involved in messaging for that local community, which is different from, if you like, the central messaging of the metropolitan police. It's a very big, fragmented organisation that nobody's got to grips with. And the thing is that whoever becomes metropolitan police commissioner ultimately started her career wanting to police, wanting to keep her community safe um, and wanting to ensure that bad people, um, frankly, were caught and that um, those of us especially who are most vulnerable were protected. They're not business people. They're not necessarily people that understand how to change, you know, cultural environments to make them better. Do we need a police officer in that role as commissioner? Or perhaps should it be an elected official or uh, even somebody outside the box that might do a better job? Uh, no, I do. I firmly believe it needs to be a police officer. Um, I think we've, we've looked at, um, you know, the experience of a lot of this happening in the States where you get someone coming in who, who looks at it through a, a business perspective or for that matter, who is too uh, political um, and, and it never generally ends particularly well. Um, I, I actually think the job of the Commissioner of the Met has become impossible now, and I don't think it really matters whether it's a police officer or not. I think that job has become, to all intents and purposes, impossible because of the meddling of politicians, exactly like Sadiq Khan. Yeah, can you talk about what that meddling is? You know, here's the thing. I mean, you know, they've got uh, constituencies that need to vote for them, right? Uh, whereas police officers want to police. And, you know, I always say this, you as a police officer, and again, you deal with it in your book, Tango Juliet Foxtrot, which is you know, for the, all, the countless successes that police have. And what I mean is, you know, you go into a domestic violence situation, you are able to uh, make that situation more safe, etc. That happens all the time, right? For every hundred cases of that kind, you might have one bad case. I don't know what the statistics are, but by and large, that's the situation. And people, and you go to uh, stations up and down the country, but especially in London, it's made up of young, brave women, women of colour, so on and so forth. You never hear the good stories, right? You only hear about the police when things go wrong. To some extent, isn't that a communication problem as well, that um, the, police off, the police need to get better at communicating their success? Or as I hear what you say about recidivism and how bad things are, but they also need to champion the good that they do and, you know, the f fundamental purpose of why they're there in the first place. Yeah, well, I think it's, um, it's a tricky one, isn't it, Rob? Because ultimately the media will only report what they want to report and in a way that they want to report it. So that, for me, all day long, is it, the, the police need to be much more savvy about the way they use social media, for example. Yeah. I mean, there was a really good example of that where in the last week or so, there was an amazing uh, video that went viral of a uh, traffic motorcyclist in London taking on a guy who was armed with a handgun single-handedly. Right. And even after he'd had the handgun um, pulled on him, he still went after him and brought him to the ground. Unbelievably brave. Now, I haven't seen any of that in any of the mainstream media. It hasn't been on the BBC. It hasn't been on any of the mainstream newspapers. So that illustrates to me very clearly that the media, some parts of the media have got an agenda. And by the way, I don't put you in that category. Can I say, Ian, um, this is a thing, I went from defending cases to prosecuting them. So I went from, you know, being, if you like, a poacher to a gamekeeper. And I worked alongside literally hundreds of officers, and I never came across once a corrupt officer, not once. And not one of them, by the way, many cases could have made a lot more money in the private sector, to say the very least, uh, that was there to do anything else and serve their community and do a good job. And it changed me.
undoubtedly. It actually prevented me moving forward to come back and to be able to successfully defend. I couldn't do the job anymore. That's how much working alongside, shoulder to shoulder with the police, really sort of influenced my life. That's why I feel um, strongly uh, about it. So when I see, and you didn't ask this, you know, going to stations uh, in London, this diversity of people that are there to serve their community, and there's such little funding that in some cases they're sharing uniforms. Um, that must be a story you've got your ear to the ground that you've heard, right? Yes, definitely. Um, and, and there's all sorts of other examples of, of that. Can you help us um, with some, please? Yeah, well, for example, um, so in my new life since leaving the police, uh, I'm now an advisor to technology companies uh, who design sort of solutions for law enforcement. Now, um, most police officers in the UK have got no means whatsoever, technical means whatsoever, of investigating digital crime, for example. So if, if someone has something happen to them, which nine times out of ten in this day and age has some sort of internet element to it, right. and most cops have got no means technical means of doing that they have to give it to a very small number of specialists right. who are swamped very very quickly um then the devices go into this massive backlog and the net result of all of that is that the victim gets nothing the offender gets away scot-free and the police officers are incredibly frustrated so it's not all about uniform right that's not a money issue that's a structural issue right it's about what equipment that of course costs money uh, uh, but also how we can police in the modern age it needs that sort of thinking you know when i speak to brilliant people and i you know again people like john apter there's people across policing up and down uh, the country that say we need a new royal commission to rethink what policing should be. You know, and I ask that question to you, why should people outside of London care about this story? Does it reflect a wider national issue? And if it does, what's the solution? Is it time for us to think root and branch about what policing should be and how we can structure it so it serves our communities properly moving forward? I think it's fair to say that, that it is a national issue. This is it's particularly acute in London, I think, because London will always become the focus of the sort of metropolitan, the, the, the preoccupation of the metropolitan so-called elite, the chattering classes, the North London dinner parties, the opinion formers and policy makers. stopped inviting so, me. And so, what can I <laughs> so, so I think it's particularly the issue in London. Um, but I think this is a broader national issue. That figure of 6% of, of uh, criminal justice outcomes for total recorded crime is a national figure so this isn't just london and I, I you're absolutely right it needs something akin to a royal commission but what it doesn't need is something that's going to take the next five years to sort it all out because at the moment policing's in crisis and the resignation of cressida dick for me is actually the final nail in the coffin for policing. Well, here's a question. It's a, an unusual thing. You know, uh, civil servants, servants in effect, and I know there are some police officers out there that tweet me and get cross when I say uh, or use the language that police officers are serving their community, but I, that's what I, I, I think they are, and they're doing it with bravery and courage every day. In many instances, there are families uh, who don't know whether dad or mum's going to come home that night. Certainly in parts of Birmingham where I used to work, that was the lived reality for police officers every day, for sure. No question about it. With that in mind, um, the thing that's very difficult about this is that in every other department, if something went wrong, the police, excuse me, the politician would not be able to blame
blame the senior civil, civil servant. It would ultimately come down to the politician who was responsible for that portfolio. That's been the political structure in this country uh, since uh, North Cotrevelian, go back to the 19th century, right? The civil servants are there to serve. They're there uh, anonymously. They're there impartially, regardless of who the government is. That we've moved now to a space where um, the person who is effectively a civil servant, who's working for our communities, but working for government of whatever complexion, ultimately gets the blame and the politician gets off scot-free because all he needs to do is sack the person. What does that say now about the relationship between politics and the police? Well, I think, um, you know, I hear politicians frequently saying uh, that we've got no confidence in uh, the Metropolitan Police, or we've got no confidence in policing or this, that and the other. Um, I think the reality is that uh, almost every UK police officer have got absolutely no confidence whatsoever in our politicians. So what does that say about our political system? Um, something somewhere has gone horribly wrong. And I'm not trying to, for one moment, deflect away from some of these sort of horrible cultural of issues that not. we've seen recently in Charing Cross. Yeah. But our political system, we've got a prime minister who seems to be a, an absolute, um, you know, very, very uh, strange way of behaving. Um, we've got the Partygate thing, which which I, I hope Cressida will drop that report on Boris's door uh, on her last day, because that would be a very nice way of saying goodbye yeah. and thank you and leave that with you. Yeah, the ultimate um, middle flinger, right? Yes, very much so. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, so I think um, the uh, there is a very strong sense at the moment that politicians are not on the side mm -hmm. of the public. They're not on the they're definitely not on the side of policing yeah. and policing. I trust me because I spent 30 years sure. in it. Police officers, the vast majority of police officers are very much on the side of the general public, right. the law-abiding They want public. to police. When you speak, they want to police. They are as frustrated as um, all the people that write to me and say to me every single day, look, we want a police officer at the end of our street. You know, my grandma um, lives in a community where she's scared every day. All she wants to do is see a person in uniform. That will radically change her experience. And she's been a taxpayer for 50 years. That's what we want. Right? And what you've just told our listeners is that budget has disappeared. That's why that officer is not there um you know i know you don't want to go uh, back into the police i suspect you do a better job than some people my question is you know um what do you think the legacy of Cressida dick will be i think she'll be i think she'll be remembered as a, a much loved commissioner someone who um tried to keep the ship sailing dead ahead through the stormiest waters imaginable mm. but ultimately um even she was unable to do that right. given the unbelievably hostile political climate right. i repeat my point i think that job's become impossible I, I think you are i have to say probably right but it's not going to change there'll be a next person in they'll be there a couple of years until they get blamed and so on and so forth and so they realize two things things you've been saying we need uh, more money and a proper restructure lastly you know um one of the tragedies of this and i do mean the tragedy is uh, that uh, the public have lost trust in the police and uh, the relationship with police and the public relies on that trust. And you talk about that quite eloquently, very eloquently in your book, Tanya Juliet Foxtrot, which I should say is worth reading. Anybody that's sort of interesting in policing and great storytelling as well, do, do have a read. The interesting thing about it is that because they've lost that trust, that's a really significant problem. It's very difficult to win trust back. For people out there that have lost trust in the police, especially in the last few months and maybe the last few years, what would you say to them? 
What I'd say to them is that you want to look at the Ipsos Mori poll about the trust in, in certain professions um, that's published every year and has been for the last sort of 30 odd years. Um, policing still comes out extremely high mm-hmm. uh, in that. It did drop in the last 12 months uh, since the previous one in, in 2020. Um, and, and, not, and not surprising, really, given the hostile um, press that there has been around policing. But it still hovers around the high 60s, low 70s percent of approval rates amongst members of the public. So it's a complete myth, mm-hmm. actually, I think, that um, nobody trusts the police. It's a, a small number of noisy so-called opinion formers and media mouthpieces who say that nobody trusts the police. Right, but what's your message? You... What's your message? You police for 30 years. Cressida is gone. There's no money. What's your message to members of the public out there that have said enough is enough? I, I think there's work to do, clearly, in terms of addressing some of the some of that toxic culture within certain small but, but stubborn parts of the organisation. What I would say to members of the public is you can trust police officers that we're overwhelmingly on your side. Uh, We are desperately trying to help you, but politicians are definitely not helping. It's politicians, not the police. Ian Donnelly, clear and helpful as ever. Hope to have you back on. His book is Tango, Juliet Foxtrot. You're listening to Talk Radio. It's now time for the news. Once we had a policeman, he was often in our street. We used to smile and wave at him while walking on his beat. But now we never see him, it really makes us frown. No longer do we feel that we're the safest street in town. Oh. <laughs> 